Jesus also called the living word of God into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. We thank you that you've also given us your word, as in the scriptures, also for the same, not to condemn us, but so that we might be saved through it. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be with us now in the words that come from my mouth and the words that fall on your people's ears, that through it you might bring us to life, that through it you might encourage us today, through it you might refresh us, through it you might build us up, for this is your heart's desire. And we pray that the Holy Spirit would so work in the hearing of the word that we ourselves might become the agents by which others are refreshed, others are encouraged, and others are built up. Do not let us be the same, but let us be changed for having heard your word. This we ask for the good of all here, the good of our city, and the glory of your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> in his book, Practicing Affirmation, the author Sam Crabtree talks about the importance of encouragement and affirmation in our relationships, the power that words have to refresh our relationships with one another. And so in the story, in the book, he gives this example about his 11-year-old daughter. He tells the story of how when his daughter turned 11, something sort of happened, something sort of snapped, something occurred where this little girl whose parents were sort of the center of her universe till then suddenly became the last people she wanted anything to do with. Something happened at 11 for her that her parents went overnight from being the people who knew everything to in one moment knowing nothing. And she went from a little girl who knew nothing to in that moment knowing everything. Sort of this distance, this coldness, this separation. There was sort of a, a clog in their relationship. They weren't connecting at all. And a wall had been built up and the parents were deeply troubled. At the same time, they described hearing how Preteens and adolescent girls often fall into bad relationships, into promiscuity, partly because of the lack of love they feel at home. That often the cheap compliment of a pimple-faced teenager becomes everything to them, and they give themselves over, body and soul, to the first one who notices them. And so their daughter, they felt with all their hearts, was in this very dangerous place. And this troubled them, provoked them deeply. And so the dad describes, Sam Crabtree describes in the book, how it became his sort of mission to woo and win his daughter back, to somehow find a way to reconnect and rekindle this love in their heart, to unclog what had become clogged, and to somehow win his daughter back. And so he sensed that affirmation was going to be the key to doing that. And so he set about to sort of train his eyes to find something that would be commendable in her, to find something that was worthy of being praised, to find something that could be encouraged and to point that out in her. And so in the story, he goes on to describe how one day he's walking past her room and it sort of looks like a tornado has blown through her room, like a, the room just threw up on itself, just a mess all over the place. And yet in that room where there's nothing good to say, he noticed that on the dresser, she had sort of arranged things so that the tall things were in the back, the small things were in the front. She wouldn't have to knock over something to get to something small in the back. She could see everything at once, and that was enough. He latched onto it, and he said, there, I love that. And she sort of looked and was caught off guard, and, and he began to say, I, I love the order in which you've designed that. It's clear that you've put some thought into that, and there's an order to it, and, and it reflects and reminds me so much of our God who is orderly. It's all he had, that's what he worked with, and he went for that. 
right? And then he describes how sometime later he saw this 11-year-old hug her mom. And he jumped on that, stopped right in the middle of the living room, did a small touchdown dance and said, I love that. I love when an 11-year-old hugs her mom. It's so good for an 11-year-old to do that. And, and it's so good for the mom to be hugged. And it's so good for the dad who walks by to see a mom being hugged. And I'm sure that all of this pleases God. He, he went on in this sort of barrage of encouragement and affirmation and commending what was commendable. So much so that he goes on to describe within just a few days, the, the pathways were cleared. And, and he had wooed her and won her heart back. And, and suddenly that distance was bridged and, and the relationship was sort of restored. Now, I, I don't know about you, but that story deeply resonates with me. And I think particularly with all of us because we all have relationships with folks that we love and care about. Right? A, a, a friend, a, a sibling, a parent, a, a child, a, a spouse. And in all those relationships that we deeply care about, we all live on sort of this continuum, right, where there's sort of affirmation on one side and correction on the other side, right? Sort of a, a spectrum, a continuum, where there's sort of correction on one side and affirmation on one side. And, and if we were like ships on that continuum, the wind tends to blow us all towards correction. Like our, our natural drift with one another is to tend towards correction. That's what sort of easily comes. It's like a treadmill that never ends. There's always another reason to correct someone. If, if we're going to drift somewhere, we tend to drift that way. And it takes a great deal of energy and effort to fight against that current to go towards the place of affirmation and encouragement in a relationship. You can't almost help it because the need for correction, the need to point something out seems to always be there, right? How often are the words that fill our mouth, you left the lights on again, dear? Are you going to be late again, dear? What a mess this place is. How many times do I have to remind you this? No, 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 not like that, like this. Would you please listen to me? Right? It, it seems like the treadmill never stops. There's always going to be a reason to drift towards correction. Now, the thing is, individually, none of these things are bad. They, they may all be innocent in themselves. Yet what tends to happen is they sort of begin to pile up and pile up to the point that, that often you come to the place where I can't hear one more thing. It, it comes to the place where I, I don't have ears to hear one more word of correction. It, it's not that there's never a place for a hard conversation. There is. It's not that there's never a place for correction. There is. But, but it's almost like Crabtree describes in his book, it's almost like a bank account where your encouragement and affirmation are like deposits and the corrections are like withdrawals. And yet sometimes we can make so many withdrawals that there's nothing left in the account for us to withdraw on. And suddenly your checks bounce and, and it's like the words that you say fall on deaf ears and bounce off because there's no more relational equity in which you can hear it. The account is being drawn on all the time and yet isn't being replenished with deposits. And so you, you begin to sense this place where there's a bankruptcy in that relationship. I don't know about you, but that's sort of what was very attractive to me about Crabtree's book. It, it made me want to read it because, at least for me, I know that I have perfect vision 
when it comes to what should be corrected and yet seem to be completely blind when it comes to what should be commended, right? When it comes to what needs to be corrected, my eyesight is perfect. I can see exactly what's wrong in this person or that situation. And yet I am so often completely blind when it comes to that which is to be commended. I've got 20-20 vision when it comes to what needs to be changed. And yet completely blind to what needs to be commended. Right? I, I get into my relationships, and I imagine you can relate. And, and you know that this person that you love, and, and it seems like you want more good for them than they want for themselves. And in that moment, you know what they need. They need a lecture. Or they need some clear instruction. Or they may need a direct and strong rebuke. And while all of that may be true, sometimes before any of that, what that person needs is encouragement. What that person needs is affirmation. What I'm saying is sometimes before your mouth opens to point out that which is wrong in their life, your eyes need to see what God is doing right in their life. I don't want you to miss that. I want you to hear that again. It may be that sometimes before you point out that which is wrong in their life, you need to spend the vision energy and mouth energy to point out what God is doing right in their life. That's what I see the Apostle Paul doing as he starts his letter to the Colossians. In the first verses, right after he's finished greeting them, the Apostle Paul does to the Colossians what Sam Crabtree did to his daughter, right? The Apostle Paul is in the same place. He's a spiritual parent. And his children in the faith, the Colossians, are in a very dangerous place. If you were here last week, you heard that what was happening in the city of Colossae is that these folks in the church were being convinced that Jesus is a good start. Don't get me wrong. But they need more if they're going to be robust, full, elite, top-level varsity Christians, right? They, they were beginning to hear from the religion around them and the culture surrounding them that Jesus is a good start. Jesus is good, but he's not enough. And just you can hear they're in a spiritually dangerous place. So what do they need? They need a good lecture. They, they need clear instruction. They need a strong and direct rebuke. And maybe yes to all of that. Maybe they need all of that. But first, they need encouragement. They need affirmation. And so before the Apostle Paul says anything to them, Paul is going to say, Colossians, here's the first thing I want you to hear. We thank God for you. I mean, literally, after he has said his greeting, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, Grace to you and peace from God our Father. There's his greeting. And the very next words out of his mouth are, Colossi, we thank God for you. Oh, Colossi, I want you to know we, we thank God for you all the time. In fact, we thank God for you regularly. We, we thank God for you always. Isn't that what he says? Look at Colossians 1, verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. What's Paul saying? Paul saying, listen, Colossae, every time I bend my knees and bow my head and close my eyes and begin to speak to God about you, thanksgiving is what comes to my lips. 
Every time, Colossi, I thank God for you. All the time, every time that I pray. Now, I want you to hear this. Paul is very aware of what's wrong at Colossae. Very aware of all the things that need to be addressed. Very aware of all the errors that need to be corrected. He's got 20-20 vision about what needs to change. And yet, none of that keeps him from seeing what God is doing in the Colossians. None of that is, makes him blind to the evidences of God's grace among the Colossians. Seeing all that's wrong doesn't prevent him from seeing what God is doing right in and through the Colossians. Now pause there. Isn't that worth noting, dear husband? Isn't that worth paying attention to, dear wife? Isn't that worth considering, concerned friend, sibling? Isn't that worth thinking about, GCM leader, soul care leader? Isn't that worth thinking about, teacher, counselor, parent? Isn't that worth thinking about in all the sphere of your relationships? Isn't it worth noticing that Paul does not gloss over the things that need to be pointed out and corrected, but nor does he gloss over the things that are commendable, the things that should be affirmed, the things that should be encouraged? No, instead, Paul starts his letter by giving thanks to God for the Colossians. And here's the other thing. He wants the Colossians to hear him give thanks to God. I've always been struck by that, right? Paul not only gives thanks to God for the Colossians, he wants the Colossians to hear him give thanks to God for the Colossians, right? If, if it's just thanks to God that's his concern, he can do that in the privacy of his prison cell from where he's writing. Between him and God, from his lips to God's ears, I thank you for the Colossians. But that's not enough for Paul. Paul wants the Colossians to hear what his lips say to God's ears. He wants the Colossians to hear, I thank God for you always, Colossians. Because his hope is that his prayer of thanksgiving to God would refresh and encourage and affirm and build up this baby church, these Colossians. Much needs to be corrected, but Paul starts with what needs to be affirmed, what needs to be commended. Now, we would also do well to notice Paul thanks God. Right Now, that's obvious. It's almost not worth even saying, but, but hear it with me. Paul thanks God. He thanks God for what the, the Colossians are doing that's right. Now, th that's, again, just obvious, but, but let me make the point. So, for example, if you gave me a gift, if Saglinda buys me season tickets to the Eagles, right, in case you're wondering what the perfect gift for your pastor would be, season tickets to the Eagles, she buys me that, what I wouldn't do is turn to Liz and go, thank you so much for this gift, right? I, I love this. This was perfect. No, that's, that's obvious. It doesn't even need to be said. No one in his right mind would thank someone who's not responsible for the gift. And so when Paul says, we thank God, Colossae, Paul's not out of his mind. What Paul's showing us is that God is the source of that which is commendable in the Colossians. That that which is praiseworthy in the Colossians comes from God. That which is going right is God's work in their lives. Paul shows us in his thanksgiving that God is the one ultimately to receive credit and glory and praise and thanksgiving for that which is commendable in the Colossians. Now hear me, Christian. I am not this morning then calling you to empty flattery. 
to just make up nice things so that you can say to each other and be warm about one another. I am asking that God's Spirit would give you eyes to see God's work in one another. That you would have eyes to pay attention to the things that God is doing right in your brother and in your sister. This is not empty flattery. This is God-centered affirmation. And what God-centered affirmation does is it glorifies God by noticing and pointing out what God is doing in another. God-centered affirmation is to the glory of God, you opening your mouth and pointing out the things that God is doing right in your brother and in your sister. So that when you affirm when you encourage, when you point out what is worthy of being pointed out, when you notice what is worthy of being noticed, when you encourage what should be encouraged, when you commend what is commendable, you ascribe to God glory and build your brother and sister up. Right? What, what Paul's doing here is brilliant for us. And, and I want you to hear, this is wonderfully practical. Wonderfully practical and helpful for us because many of us, even if you're a Christian here, there are times when we hesitate to encourage one another, hesitate to affirm, hesitate to praise one another, partly even out of this right concern that says we don't want to attribute to man what ultimately belongs to God. Uh, we've got this deep concern for the glory of God that we ought not share with man, and so we hold back our tongue lest someone be puffed up and proud and built up because of these words. And yet Paul shows us models for us what God-centered affirmation looks like. It's affirmation that glorifies God while at the same time encouraging, building up, refreshing this brother, this sister. It's opening your mouth in such a way that when we notice what should be noticed, God gets glory and you get encouraged. By the way, then, the inverse of that is true too, which is that when we fail to notice what should be noticed, and when we fail to commend what is commendable, and when we fail to encourage what should be encouraged, we rob God of praise and glory due to him. We fail to speak of his work in this person's life, and we rob him of praise that he is due. And so I, I'd say to you, hear me, Paul's word here glorifies God while at the same time building up the Colossians. And, and I, I want you to hear this. Would you even consider that Jesus tells a parable that has the effect of saying that when a believer dies and goes to sea with him, the, the master will actually look at you and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Can you imagine that the master of the universe is going to commend you? If it is not beneath Jesus, to say well done to you, it ought not be beneath us to say well done to one another. If Jesus' lips will be filled with words of affirmation for you, then do we not model Jesus when we affirm one another? At this juncture, here's what I'd say. Perhaps what you should already be asking is, Spirit of the living God, who is it in my life that needs a word of encouragement from me? Perhaps the spirit of the living God can already bring to the surface of your mind a face, a name that needs to be refreshed. And it might, in fact, be your word that does it. It should be at this point that you ask God's spirit, what relationship exists in my life 
where I have 20-20 vision about what's wrong and am completely blind to the things that God is doing right? What, what relationship exists in my life where I'm writing blank checks? I mean, checks that bounce, that there's nothing in the account left, where I've withdrawn and haven't deposited. Where does God need to train my eyes to see what is commendable, what should be encouraged, what should be affirmed? Who is it that is shriveling, unnoticed, and unthanked because God's people have not paid attention to what God is doing? And so begin to ask yourself, God, who, who would you have me refresh, even today? In fact, I'd, I'd say to you, perhaps obedience for you today would be today you write a note. Today you send an email. Today you make a call to commend what is commendable, to pay attention and give voice to what God is doing right. And who knows, dear friend, dear brother, dear sister, the impact that that could have? Who knows? I'll tell you, when I was just a kid, I remember uh, in the church I grew up in, they sort of let anybody preach. And so even as a, a kid, I would preach just because I liked the Bible. I could speak, and so they'd let me preach. I had no grasp of theology. I can't even imagine what I was saying from the front, right? So nothing good must have been coming. And yet, I, I sort of liked it. And, and I'm not in ministry. I'm not a pastor. I'm not clergy. So how are you going to tell somebody you like doing this? That sounds so dumb. And so I, I've got this thing where I enjoy the doing this, but, but, but I have no idea whether this is for me. And I remember after preaching once, a, a guy in college, I'm in grade school, middle school, high school, something like that, says, can I talk with you? And I'm already a bit nervous because a college kid wants to talk to me. I'm just a kid. He sits me down and he says to me, I want you to know, I think God has given you a gift to preach. And then he goes on to say, I think you should even consider doing this with your life. I can't tell you what that did in my soul. I, I can't tell you the impact that had on the trajectory God put me on. Because a brother took two minutes to sit me down and affirm something God was doing in my life. You have no idea, dear brother. You have no idea, dear sister. What a word from you might do. What trajectory and story God might write in the life of someone else because you paid attention to what God was doing right in their life. There is much to be corrected, much to be changed about the Colossians, but Paul starts by saying, Colossae, I want you to know we give God thanks every time we pray for you. And Paul doesn't just give a generic thank you. He sort of has specific things that he thanks God for. In fact, three of them that I'll show you quickly and then we'll be done. Look at Colossians 1, verses 3 to 8. Paul identifies here three specific things that he thanks God for. He says, we thank God every time since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. We'll pause there. Here's sort of the, the big idea I want you to see. Paul is not just going to thank God. He's going to thank God for three things. And what he's going to thank God is, we thank God, Colossae. We thank God, church, for giving you faith in Christ, for giving you love for one another, and for giving you hope in heaven. Right? Here's the three things I want you to hear. We thank God, Colossae for giving you faith in Christ and love for one another and hope in heaven. Look at the first one with me. He thanks God for their faith in Christ Jesus. 
right? He says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. So he's saying, Colossi, when I bow my head, and I bend my knees, and I close my eyes, and I start praying, and I start thinking about you, the first thing that comes to my mouth is, God, thank you for their faith. Right? He thanks God for the faith of the Colossians. He credits God for their faith. Right? That is to say, spiritually, the Bible says you and I are dead as a doorknob. We have no life, nothing in us. Like if you're drowning, you're not rescued by yourself. It's someone else pulled you out. You and I were spiritually dead, and God put a faith in us. And so he says, we thank you, God, for the faith of the Colossians. But I want you to notice also, it's not a generic faith. A vague faith. It's not sort of the way we talk about faith, which is just sort of, you know, have faith. Keep the faith. Don't lose faith. And when we say that, we mean just a general, vague, sort of positive thinking, good vibes. If you stay up and upbeat, the universe will sort of take care of you kind of faith. That's not it at all for Paul. Paul is thanking God for a very specific faith. Since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. It's not a general, you sort of have faith. Oh, I wish I could have this person's faith. It is a very specific, we thank God for your faith in Christ Jesus. That means that Jesus is the object of your faith. That Colossae, we thank God that you bought in all the way on this Jesus. That, that is that you believe there is the triune God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. You believed, you put your faith in that the triune God, Jesus, the Son, came to the earth. You believe in his birth. You believe in his perfect life without sin. You believe that he died for us, the death that we deserved for our sin. You believe that the dead body of Jesus came back to life on the third day. You believe that Jesus is ascended to heaven and that same Jesus is going to come again. You believe all that. And so we thank God, Colossi, for your faith in Christ Jesus. We, we thank God for your faith in him. And I want you to hear that word faith, that's not just mental assent. That, that's not just, I, I believe in George Washington and I believe in Jesus. Some kind of historical fact that I check the box on. This is not just a, I sort of subscribe to that. You know, at the bottom of that long email thread where I've read all the terms and comply and you just blindly click yes. That's not this. This is, I, I've thrown my life into this thing. I've put my entire being and soul onto this being true. It, it's sort of like, you know, when you get sick. When you get sick, you go to a doctor, a man or a woman you don't even know. They write something on a piece of paper you can't read. You bring it to a pharmacy, hand it to a person you have no idea who they are. They put some stuff in a bottle you have no idea what it is. And you know what you do? You swallow them whole three times a day. Right? That's faith. That, that's not theoretical, medicine is good for some people. That is, I'm throwing my life onto the reality that this thing is going to make me well. And the, the news of the scriptures is your soul is dead, and there is one being who can bring it back to life. And you throw your lot and your life onto Jesus Christ. I mean, as sure as I'm standing here, I believe in Jesus Christ. As sure as there is breath in my being, so sure is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, born, died, rising again, ascended to heaven and coming back for me. That is what the Colossians, 
Paul is saying, we thank God for your faith. But listen, it's not just that he thanks them for their faith. It's not just that he thanks God for their faith. Second, he thanks God for their love. Right? The second thing, he thanks God for their love for one another. Right? The verse continues. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. We thank God for your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. Now, I don't want you to miss this. Because faith is great, but faith without love is the ugliest thing in the world. Please don't gloss over that. Hear that again. Faith is great, but faith without love is ugly. It's hypocrisy at best. It's stomach-turning ugliness at worst to have faith without love. I, I saw a picture that is now sort of burned onto my brain that I think without any words communicates perfectly what it looks to have right doctrine and no love, right? Let me, let me show you a picture. You see that picture? You know what that is? That's perfect doctrine devoid of love. That's what faith without love looks like. And what it does is it turns your stomach. Because you could have the most true sentence in the world, and yet without love, that is stomach-turning ugliness. And so Paul, Paul says, listen, a Christian is not just one who believes, who has faith. It's faith and love for one another. That Christians, those who follow Jesus Christ, ought to be the most loving people on the planet. We should be known for our love. We should have a reputation in the world of being loving people. In fact, that's what the Colossians were. Did you notice Paul says, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. That is, Colossi, you're loving one another in such a way people are talking about it. You're loving such a, in such a way that you have a reputation now of being a loving people. Imagine that. In fact, he goes on in verse 8 to say, Epaphras, the guy who planted your church, your pastor, he can't stop talking about your love. How you love one another, verse 8, how you, he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Imagine that. The Colossians are a people who have a reputation for loving one another. Faith in Christ and a love for one another. And if there's one word in that verse that I want to point you to, it's a three-letter word because in it he says, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. Right? All. You should bold, italicize, underline that word. The love that you have for all all the saints. Colossi, we thank God for the love that you have for all the saints. That is to say, not just the ones you like. Not just the Christians you get along with. Not just the Christians you share an interest with. So that you're talking to this person here, and that's okay, but all the while you wish you were talking to them over there. Not to the Christian who has that killer personality. Not to the Christian who's larger than life. Just to the average humble saint in the kingdom of God. We thank God for the love that you have for all the saints. I want you to think about that. Right? I was having, Shannon and I had dinner this week with Luke and Jamie. We're just sitting around and Luke said the most wonderful, insightful thing. He said, I think our idea of community and God's idea about community is often different. Right? When we have community together, 
We're in relationships with one another. Our sort of thought is these exist to sort of support me, right? To help me in, in times when I need it. And, and he said, yes, that's absolutely true. But he said, sometimes I wonder if God's primary purpose for community isn't to change and refine us, particularly by causing us to work at loving people who we otherwise wouldn't love. Right? You think of that. Uh, we have smaller communities outside of these Sundays called GCM or, or Soul Care. You, you think of the people who are in your GCM or Soul Care, and chances are not everyone in that group would peop be people you naturally would align with if you were creating it. And yet, why do they exist? They don't just exist for your comfort and for your support in time of need. They exist because God intends to change you through the people he surrounded you with. Pastor Binu didn't assign this to you, and I didn't assign this to you. God knows who you are, and so God saw it fit to put the very people that you probably would have no interest in to be the ones that you are forced to be loved by and love so that your love might not be what the world loves. The world is very good at loving people who share an interest with them. The gospel says Jesus loves those who are very difficult to love. Thank God. That's why he loves you. That's why he loves me. So then we can't reduce that to go, yes, I am very good with having good thoughts towards people who I'm not very particularly fond of. And, and, and real community I'm talking about. Not just it's fine when I see them on a Wednesday. It's, it's the people that I'm in that I would never otherwise share life with. M meaning, it's, it's not the people I would invite on a Saturday. It's not the people I would give my free Saturday to hang out with. And yet God put me in community there. Why? To teach you what it looks like to love all the saints. So that your common connection is Jesus Christ. And is that connection enough that you might be moved to love all the saints? I didn't say any of that. Luke did. That was brilliant, right? A strong amen to that. We thank God, Colossae, for your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. This is God's doing. But, but faith and love are not the only things. There's one more, a third thing. Paul thanks God for their faith in Christ and their love for one another, and he thanks God for one more thing. Third, he thanks God for their hope in heaven. We thank God for your hope in heaven. Now, if you're familiar at all with the New Testament, if you've thumbed through the Bible, there's a good chance you've heard this triad of words before. There's a good chance you've seen these three words, faith, love, hope, faith, hope, and love, right? In fact, it's littered all throughout the New Testament. In fact, in the New Testament, these are sort of the essential marks of Christianity, right? And, and what Paul's sort of saying is, Colossae, you're being told by others that if you want to be full, robust Christian, you need this and that and the other thing, but I want you to know, here's the essential marks of Christianity. It's faith in Christ. It's love for one another. It's hope in heaven, and you have all three, you, you don't lack anything. The gospel has produced in you what it produces everywhere, faith, hope, and love. And, and Colossae, I want you to know, I thank God for your faith in Christ, and I thank God for your love for one another, and I thank God for the hope that you have in heaven. And here, I want you to notice that hope is sort of the key, right? It's sort of the foundation for the other two. Hope seems to be the big deal here. Pay attention to the verse, 3, 4, and 5. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus 
and the love that you have for all the saints because of, notice that, because of, as in, here's the reason, because of the hope laid for you in heaven. And so at least in this passage, Paul seems to be saying faith in Christ and love for one another stems from a hope in heaven. That hope in heaven is what seems to be fueling their faith in Christ and their love for one another. That is essentially to say, the Colossians are so sure of what's coming, so sure of what awaits them in the future, in the resurrection, in the world to come. With every fiber of their being, they're sure that Jesus Christ is going to come back, that he is going to be Lord of lords and King of kings, that he is going to rule over this new heaven and earth, that there will be no more sin and we will have loving relationships, no friction, no more need for correction, no misunderstandings. We will actually love one another. And because that world is so surely coming, it impacts their faith in Christ now and their love for one another. That that rock-solid reality of what is to come has spilled into the presence with implications on how we live now. That if I believe with every fiber of my being, Jesus Christ really is going to come back, Lord of lords, King of kings, then it fuels my faith in Christ. I can live like he really is God and my life is really under him. And if I believe with every fiber of my being that I'm going to a world where all those who are in Christ will be with me and I with them and every person I meet will become my new best friend and there will be love forever, then it fuels my love for the saints now. I'm going to spend eternity with you. Whether you like me or not, you're going to spend eternity with me. And so that means that we can begin to live that future day now with love for all the saints. We're going to believe in the hope that says, in heaven, the humblest saint will be greater than anything you've seen in the world. And so I love all the saints. There's no class there, and so there's, there's no class that spills into here. This hope fuels their faith in Christ and their love for one another. And, and I want you to know, in this section, in the New Testament, hope is different than you and I say the word hope. When we say hope, we mean it could happen, it might not happen, we're not really sure. I hope the weather is good this week. I hope the Phillies win a game once. I, I hope we draft Marcus Mariota. Like, it could happen, it may not happen. In the New Testament, hope is with every fiber of my being, sure and certain as sure as I'm breathing, so sure is Jesus Christ coming back with a new heaven and a new earth. Every fiber of my being has thrown into that. And what that does is fuel my faith in Christ and my love for one another. And Paul is saying, listen, Colossae, you're being told you don't have what it takes to be a full Christian. Well, you have faith in Christ. You have love for the saints. You have hope in heaven. Those are the marks. And, and Paul wants to end this passage by telling you, where does all that come from? Where does the hope in heaven that fuels the faith in Christ and leads to the love for the saints, where does all that come from? And his one word answer to that is it comes from the gospel. Right? Let me just have you here, five through eight. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. 
Here's basically what that big section is saying. Paul's saying, Colossae, your faith in Christ and love for one another, rooted in this hope in heaven, has come because the gospel came to you. And when you believe the gospel, the gospel did among you what it is doing in the entire world. Wherever the gospel goes in the whole world, it does there what it has done among you, which is develop faith in Christ, love for one another, hope in heaven. Listen, Colossi, Paul's saying, if, if the chatter is coming, you need something more than Jesus. You, you need this extra spiritual thing. You need this additional belief. You need this extra experience. The gospel is coming and saying to you, what the gospel produces the whole world over is faith, hope, and love. And hear me, this is what it's doing among you. This is wonderful for us to hear. It's wonderful for us to hear because Paul's saying, Colossi, you're being tempted and lured away by a small local lie when the gospel is doing something universally true. You've got some chatter in the small city of Colossi that you're buying. Well, the gospel's doing something the world over. And, and I, I would say to you, the same thing is true for us. Like last week, if you were here, I told you, we've got an atmosphere and air all around us, too, that we let into our spiritual lungs. For example, we live in a day that the key words are tolerance, pluralism. Every faith is valid. Everything is completely equal. You should completely accept everything I believe. I should completely accept everything you believe. Everything is valid. And we breathe that in so much so that we almost come to think this is the way the world should work. And without us even knowing it, it's filling our spiritual lungs. But I want you to hear me. As prevalent as all that seems in our culture, it's just a small local lie. Because I'm, I, I kid you not, if you literally just go halfway around the world, they don't believe that. If you go to Iran, nobody there is saying tolerance and pluralism is the way everyone should be. We breathe it in. They don't think that's the way. And if you think, well, that's because they're wrong and we're right, how utterly intolerant of you, right? How ridiculously narrow-minded of you. How completely ethnocentric of you. And so what, what flies as permanent here doesn't even work there. And yet what Paul's saying is, on the other hand, with the gospel, whether you go to Toronto or Tokyo, whether you go to Paris or Philadelphia, the gospel the world over breeds faith in Christ and love for the saints and hope in heaven. And that's what it does in the entire world. So that if you go to a believer in Tokyo, you're gonna, you know what you're going to find? He has faith in Christ, and he loves Christians, and he's got a hope in heaven. And if you go talk to a sister in Paris, you're going to find that she has faith in Christ, she has love for Christians, and she has hope in heaven. And Paul's saying, what God is doing in Toronto, and Tokyo, and Paris, and to the ends of the earth, Seven Mile Road, he's doing here too. And we thank God for your faith in Christ Jesus. And the love that you have for all the saints. And the hope laid up for you in heaven. You are not second class Christians, Colossi. Nor are you, Seven Mile Road. Because what the gospel is doing world over, it is doing here also. And so you have everything you need in Christ Jesus. Let me just end by saying this. Seven Mile Road, as one of your pastors, I would say to you the same thing Epaphras and Paul said to Colossi. I, I can picture very well in my mind Epaphras' gushing joy as he's talking about his church. I can picture it. I can picture Paul saying, Epaphras, tell me, how's, how's the church at Colossae? 
And I can picture this pastor not being able to contain himself going, Paul, oh, they, they have such a deep faith in Jesus. And Paul, I, they love one another. I could sit here and tell you stories about it. And Paul, they've got this rock-solid hope in heaven. And I could picture that because Seven Mile Road, I would say the same thing to you. Seven Mile Road, I would say to you, we thank God for your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for one another and your hope in heaven. We thank God. It's not your doing. It's God's doing something right in you, but we thank God for it. As one of your pastors, Benu and I would tell you, and we've said it before, there is literally nowhere else we'd rather be doing nothing else with no one else than believing the gospel in community on mission with you. And we thank God for you with every fiber of our being. We thank God for your faith in Christ Jesus because we have seen this is not a mental checking the box. No, we have seen that you have thrown your life onto this thing with every fiber of your being. You have changed your life to fit Jesus Christ as Lord over and above all things. We thank God because you and I were dead as a doorknob, and yet Jesus brought this church to life. We thank God for your faith in Christ. And we thank God for your love for one another. We've seen that too. We've seen you walk through sorrow and suffering with one another. We've seen you send emails and write texts and make phone calls and drive long distances to visit one another. We've seen you walk with one another, not in superficial, shallow friendships, but beyond the surface, in depth. We've seen you confess sin and not be a judgmental, condemning place, but to genuinely love one another. We've seen the love that you have for all the saints. And we thank God because of the hope that you have in heaven. We've seen that too. We've seen you walk through sadness of the worst kind. We've seen you walk through the worst suffering. We've seen you walk through disease and pain. We've seen you now walk through death. And in it all, we've also seen how you have clung to the hope in heaven. We've seen how you've held on to, with every fiber of your being, that the future day is coming and it's better than this day. We've seen you live a life so that, like Paul says, this momentary and light affliction is nothing worth being compared to the weight of the glory that is yet to be revealed. We've seen you look forward to that day in a way that impacts your life this day. We've seen you believe so much in the hope of heaven where every tribe and tongue will be together so that you embrace diversity today. We've seen you try desperately to be on mission so that that future hope of all people being before Jesus' throne might be lived out. We've seen how hope there impacts life today here. And we thank God for you. With every fiber of my being, I would tell you, uh, by the authority that comes from God's word, even as the Apostle Paul said to Colossae, so I would say to you as a pastor, I would say to you, a J, a pastor, by the will of God, to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ at Seven Mile Road, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We thank God every time we pray for you because of your faith in Christ Jesus and because of your love for one another and because of your hope in heaven through the gospel.
Let's pray.